Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Nine years ago, when the legislature okayed casinos in the Bay State, opponents worried that more opportunities to gamble would make it difficult for people with a gambling habit. Last year, Everett's Encore Boston Harbor became the third Massachusetts casino to pop up in the last decade, with more to come. How bad is this for compulsive gamblers, and does this environment put many others at risk of developing problem gambling habits? Later in the show, everyone deserves to live a life of purpose. That's the founding principle of the New England Center for Arts and Technology. How NECAT empowers underemployed adults through training in professional culinary skills, social-emotional development, and career readiness. But first, last year we spoke with three individuals at the heart of the fight to prevent and treat compulsive gambling. Joining me in the studio... Dr. Debbie LaPlante, Director of Cambridge Health Alliance's Division on Addiction. Hello, Dr. LaPlante. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Marlene Warner, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. Hello, Marlene. Hello. And joining me from the studios of WNHN, Ed Talbot, Executive Director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Good to have you. I want to start with a question that might seem simple, but I think people need to understand it. Marlene, what is gambling addiction? So gambling addiction can look a little bit different to every person. It's really uh, when gambling becomes something that's no longer comfortable. An individual can no longer control their gambling behavior. So gambling itself can be fun and entertaining, but for someone who's struggling with a gambling addiction, it's really overpowering them. It's causing some social problems, emotional problems, mental problems. could be causing problems at home or at school or at work. Uh, So it really can manifest itself differently for each person, but it's really taking a a hold on somebody. It's controlling their lives. So, Dr. LaPlante, it sounds like every other kind of addiction we've ever heard about. Is that true? It actually shares a lot of similarities with other expressions of addiction. You specifically can look to the experience of people who have gambling-related problems. They often crave gambling when they're not engaging in that behavior. They continue gambling despite adverse consequences, and they feel a loss of control over their gambling behavior. And those are very similar experiences to what people who might have problems with alcohol or other substances feel as well. Ed Talbot, you are someone who now counsels people with gambling addiction, but you yourself were a person who really was struggling with that 
You started when you were quite young. Please talk about how you got into it. Actually, it was quite innocent. I was uh, a passenger in a car on the way to high school. The driver in the car was going to go to the local dog track that night and asked if we wanted to chip in and play a daily double. And four of us put in 50 cents. The next day we got in the car and he said, we won $21, you know, split four ways, uh, big $5 win. But those days, that was big money. And that, that was the first bet I made, and it was successful. And so from there, I mean, that sounds like something I could do. I could, you know, go up to MGM Springfield and, you know, I think I'd walk away and and not have any lingering, except I'd like to win, of course. But, you know, it wouldn't bother me after that. What took a hold of you? After that, I started doing it recreationally as I got a little bit older and started going to the track legally with a bunch of guys and that. And, you know, we'd have a fun night, drink a couple of beers, bet the dogs. But I really liked being at the track. And it just progressed over the years. I wound up working at the track for 11 years and the gambling and the problems associated with it escalated. And as Dr. LaPlante mentioned, the different signs of the addiction, the difference with gambling is uh, you wouldn't drink another beer or smoke another joint and think that was going to solve all your problems. But with the gambler, and especially in my case, I got into the chasing phase where you can see the only way out is that big hit. And that lie keeps you gambling and digs the hole deeper and deeper. Is it possible for someone who recreationally gambling or maybe every now and then may come across it to then become an addict without having some underlying addictive tendencies? I think that's what a lot of us think about as we consider compulsive gambling. Mm -hmm. I think that this is actually a, a pretty complicated question. I mean, it really relates to the development of addiction. At the division, we do work on how addiction emerges, and we look to psychological predispositions, biological predispositions, social predispositions. And we look at how those things come together with the experiences that you have in your life and the contact that you have with different potential objects of addiction. And really it is an interaction between all of those things and a continued engagement with that particular behavior. So I think that It is important to have some of those risk factors, and Ed mentioned some from his own story, some well-known risk factors. In fact, early exposure in your Mm -hmm. life, uh, having an early big win, him being a man, some of those factors that kind of set you up to being at risk for developing addiction later on. I'd say it's important to note that addiction isn't just doing a lot of something. You have to have these other hallmark characteristics. You have to have the important consequences that are associated with addiction. It's really about the relationship that an individual has with that particular experience, more so than just the amount that they're doing something. So Marlene, 2% of the population are problem gamblers and I understand that translates to about 500,000 people in in Massachusetts. Is that about right? That's right, yeah. So when we think about that, that's really people who meet clinical criteria. So that's kind of the most extreme population. There are also folks who are at high risk. So some folks may also call problem gamblers, and that's 8.4% of the population. So we're in total looking at 10.4% of the Massachusetts population based on the social and economic impacts of gaming in Massachusetts study that's been done at UMass Amherst. So the reason I've been interested in having this conversation for some time is, as I look around in Massachusetts, there appears to be a lot of gambling available. Not only are the casinos that I mentioned at the beginning, there's the lottery, and now there's talk that Governor Baker would like to bring in online sports betting. 
that seems to me to add to an at-risk environment in a way that would perhaps propel some people who are not in that 500,000 group that we're talking about, because as you said, those are the extreme people, but could cause other people to fall prey. Am I wrong, uh, Marlene? So I think that's another complicated question. Uh, Debbie and I both can kind of tackle a little bit. I think that what we know is that there's an exposure adaptation model. And again, I'll let Dr. LaPlante talk about this a little bit more. But at some point, people, they adapt to their environment. They adapt to the amount of gambling. So we know that it used to be that people within a 50-mile radius of a new casino one would assume that their rates would go up, but we're not seeing that as much. In fact, we know that, again, with the study done at a UMass Amherst, one year after Plain Ridge Park Casino opened, they looked at the rates, and the rates haven't changed at all. And so it could be that people living in southeastern Massachusetts, because they've already been exposed to the casinos in Rhode Island, uh, that they're closer to the casinos in Connecticut, that they're pretty densely populated in terms of lottery agents, that they already have an exposure that was not going to make them at high risk for more gambling coming in. Mm -hmm. So I think the the short answer is we don't know. Sports gambling is a whole new thing because we know that the U.S. Supreme Court last May overturned it being illegal across the states that each individual state now is setting up uh, different rules, different laws as it relates to that. So I think a lot remains to be seen. Your point, though, around, you know, the extreme population in terms of folks who already have the addiction versus the folks that are high risk, that to me is the group that we need to be most concerned with. How do we keep people build their protective factors and minimize their risk factors so that they are not coming in to more problems as more exposure happens. Uh, So, Ed, I just wonder, for you, who struggled with this a long time in your life before you finally got control of it, and one is always in recovery, so I know that you continue to be that, what would it have meant for you to have all of these new things that are potentially going to be available. So uh, as Marlene has said, and as as Dr. LaPlante has said, that, you know, we're exposed here with the casinos, and we have the lottery now, that this sports betting is going to come to be, and the potential of online gambling as well. Well, especially in my case, I had a hard time accepting that I couldn't gamble safely. I thought it was, I didn't have a gambling problem. One of my keys in denying it was I only bet paramutual racing, either the horse track or the dog track. The Massachusetts State Lottery was just starting when I first started gambling. I didn't play the lottery. I didn't go to casinos. So I was in denial. I thought somebody had to be in action all the time. Uh, Two seagulls flying down the street, you'd bet on who got to the corner first. But that isn't it. When I realized my life was completely unmanageable and that had been as the result of my gambling, that's when I really came to grips with it. And I tried to stop several times on my own and was unsuccessful. I want to take a listen to a clip from a multimedia series by the Las Vegas Sun. This was in 2011, which is, as you know, the same year that uh, Massachusetts decided to expand casinos here. And it's really about the human toll of compulsive gambling, about which Ed Talbot, my guest, was just speaking about. This is Tony McDew, and he's talking about his struggles as a compulsive gambler. It's like you're getting high. You're on cloud nine, and you can, no one can tell you that, hey, what you're doing is, is wrong. I felt like I put all this money in, and over the period of years, it's going to pay off. Later on, I got into title loan. Title loan is where you pawn your car. So I did that, and that's where I made my mistakes, thinking that the casino was going to give me that money, pay back the pawn shop, and I'm losing a lot of my, my valuable. Ed Talbot, you can relate to that, right? Positively can A year before I stopped gambling, my mother was on her deathbed dying of cancer. The night before she passed away, 
she talked to her three sons, and her words to me weren't, Ed, I love you. You've been a wonderful son. It was, if you don't stop your gambling, you're going to lose everything. She passed away the next day, and I spent the next year proving her absolutely right. I lost everything I had, uh, was out of the house, out of a job, out of money, out of self-esteem. Uh, you know, a completely broken person. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Debbie LaPlante of the Division on Addiction, Marlene Warner of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling, and Ed Talbot, you just heard him, of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. We're discussing gambling addiction prevention and treatment in Massachusetts, or we're about to, as gambling opportunities become more common around the state. So let's talk about prevention and treatment. Honestly, Debbie, I don't understand how one prevents something you don't know you have until you start doing it. Well, I think that the prevention science for gambling is is really kind of premature still. And we need to do a lot more work to better understand how gambling and gambling disorder emerges over time. And understanding that will help us understand what to do in advance of those problems developing. So we need to do a lot more work to understand what the host of risk factors are, what the host of protective factors are, and really identifying those, honing in on those, and building programs around those pieces of information. I think that it requires a lot of coordination among the key stakeholders with people who also have struggled with this issue. I think doing that would really set us on the path towards a better future with solid prevention programs. So part of the legislation that passed that allowed more casinos in Massachusetts was that a part of the revenue that came into the state would be put aside to help people who would be struggling around this. You said, Marlene, that it really needs to be larger than the individuals, but also the communities need to be looked at because they're impacted as well. But nonetheless, what are you doing now? Because I know you are doing something now to deal with people who are in the throes of being addicted. So we're doing a number of things. We have, first and foremost, our helpline, which we've had since the day Tom Cummings started the Mass Council 35 years ago. And so someone who understands on the other end of that line or at the other end of your computer to be able to talk with you in real time around what are the struggles you're currently dealing with. So that's the first thing. And I think that's kind of the most important thing because we understand we're here, we can help. In addition to that, though, prior to it becoming a problem, what we really try to do is help the professionals who are out there. So I think one of the things that's key about gambling is that there are very few places where you can just focus on gambling. Instead, we are in centers where they're already dealing with addiction, where they're dealing with mental health. We're in schools. We're in all the various places trying to build capacity of those professionals to be able to ask the right questions, making sure your physicians are asking the right questions. Those are the type of places we're trying to make an impact. And it, they can recognize some of the symptoms. Exactly, okay. exactly. Having the professionals asking the right questions as well as just them being trained to be able to see some of the signs and symptoms. They call this the invisible or hidden addiction. You don't have track marks. You don't smell like alcohol. You don't have some of those other signs that are fairly typical. But if a bankruptcy attorney is trained to start asking questions about where the money went or if a financial planner is trained to ask what is the daily budget or weekly budget or monthly budget and where are some of these large segments of money going, they're better suited to be able to refer you to help. So that's some of the work we do. 
In addition, we are the host of the GameSense program in Massachusetts. Massachusetts Gaming Commission licensed the brand GameSense from the British Columbia Lottery Corporation, and they contract with us to run the centers, which were part of the mandate through the 2011 Expanded Gaming Act, to have on-site centers at the casino. So I have ah. um, I have staff oh. named GameSense Advisors, or GSAs, who are on-site from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m., seven days a week, at the casinos dressed in green shirts and their whole job is to meet you where you're at so if you've come in for a bachelorette party and you've never been to a casino they're going to help you make an informed decision about your gambling they're going to tell you how roulette works and the odds of how that works and so that you can make a better decision about that versus a slot machine versus a poker table they're also there if you have some questions about kind of how you interact with gambling, whether that be that you have some risk factors or you just have questions. They're there to answer your questions. They're there to bust myths. They're there to offer tips. They're not going to help you gamble to win, but they're going to help you gamble in a safe way for you. Mm-hmm. And then they're also there for the people for whom gambling really becomes out of control. And so those game sense advisors are there to connect you with resources outside the casino. They're there to help you self-exclude if you don't want to go back to the casino. They're really there to meet you again wherever you're at and connect with you in a way that's most helpful. So here's something that I'm interested in, and that is the video games and the slot machines, because it seems to me that slots and these other slot-like machines, these VLTs, the video games, are really drawing people in. And I'm wondering if that's the experience that you've seen, Debbie. And also, Ed, I'm wondering if if you're seeing that as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think Mm -hmm. different people are Mm -hmm. attracted to different type of games, and different people have different problems with different types of games. What we do at the division is really look at people's overall gambling patterns and strategies to try to identify who might be at risk of of having problems. So let me ask you a question. So here we have a whole generations now, generations with an S, of digital natives. Everything's on the phone. Everything's mobile. Everything's electronic. So it seems to me that's an easier path, a kind of gateway. Am I wrong? I think there are some transitions that are going on and what people are attracted to. And you can see that some companies are actually pulling slot machines from their casino floor. They're favoring some more modern types of machines, some actual traditional gaming, more like video game gambling. And that, I think, really speaks to what your point about trying to attract that younger generation that doesn't want to just sit there and press one button and watch reels go. They want to kind of be engaged. Maybe they want to actually be doing a video game that they play at home, but they want to kind of wager on on their experience. Ed, what are you seeing in New Hampshire? And of course, we should say that you lived a long time in Massachusetts. So I wonder if any of these, the video games, the VLTs, the stuff on the phone, do you see drawing different generations of folks or is it about the same? I think it's about the same. My experience has been both in from the recovery sense, from the helpline sense, that most of the inquiries we get uh, centered around casino gambling, period. It's not necessarily slots versus table games and that. But I think sometimes the, the attraction you would expect, the, I haven't seen the increase in that versus the other forms of gambling. I would just say to that, we still really don't know. I think that, to Debbie's point, we certainly see that casinos are, are starting to change some of their games out. They're doing stadium gaming so that you can play machines, but you're playing as a group um, with someone leading you up front. There's more ways for you to do social casinos on your phone where then you're playing this game here on your phone and then you can go play that same game there. But a lot of that still is yet to be studied. Mm. The piece I will say, though, is that 
our traditional approaches to intervention and treatment and recovery really are based for more an adult population. And so we wouldn't expect for kids to be reaching out to us on our helpline or showing up at our treatment centers. We're not seeing the impact as much as I think might ex- that we I might, might expect. Get, yeah, guess from just the, the manner in which the formats are Precisely. not drawing. Okay, that's Precisely. interesting. Um, the reason I ask about the, the slot machines in particular is because I saw this clip from the Today Show. Um, this is an addiction specialist. Her name's Nancy Irwin, and she discusses her own gambling addiction, which is the subject of her book, Confessions of a Slot Machine Queen. I started taking out advances on my credit card. Then I started going into my salary, using my earnings to gamble. This is like, it was very rapid. This was a very rapid decline. And it's all, uh, along the way, I'm telling myself, I need to stop because I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to destroy my life. You know, that gave me pause. That was an addiction specialist. So presumably somebody who knew the ways of how gambling psychologically could impact you, and yet she too, you know, got caught up in it. That just gave me pause. I'm wondering for all of you who've been in the field of looking at compulsive gambling, both researching it and working with people who are suffering from it, if you've seen any changes that are significant um, in either the manner in which they first are engaged beyond recreational gambling or in their seeking help, any of that. Has there been any significance to note? I'll start with you, Ed Talbot. Uh, First and foremost, I'd say the biggest significance I've seen is the presence of women. I remember the first decade in recovery, it was rare that you saw a woman at a 12-step meeting. I've been at 12-step meetings for the last few years where sometimes the women outnumber the men. And that's, I think, is because gambling has been more attractive with the casinos and that. It's a, you know, it's a night out. It's a fun thing. But then subtly, they, people can get sucked into it and then get in trouble. That's probably the biggest change I've seen. And then the traditional forms of gambling, when I started parimutuel race, racing, card games, things like that, have been replaced by the casinos, the lotteries, and sports gambling. So those are big differences, the big differences I've seen. Debbie? I think that Ed makes a great point. Um, I'd also probably bring up technology-based gambling opportunities, and not that they're necessarily at more risk for those, but just kind of more involvement brings out more opportunity to Mm. develop those types of problems. So watching those changes over time, um, looking at national surveys and things like that has been kind of eye-opening. And I hear that with the technology, that a lot of the programmers can now program more near misses, which, as I understand it, is very much addictive for people. So you almost win. That brings you back and draws you in, Marlene. Yes, absolutely. I think that is it's very hard to combat uh, when we're talking about educating someone, right, and helping them make an informed decision. Well, how do you explain that to someone? It's very difficult, and it is something certainly that is able to hook people a little bit more. And I was going to say, in answer to your question, that I feel like over the last 18 years that I've been in the field, we see less people calling our helpline, but when they're calling, they're much more in crisis than they ever were before. Mm -hmm. So I think our culture has shifted a bit in terms of how often people are actually going to reach out to a real-life person and talk with someone, but when they're calling, they're really in crisis and in desperate need for help. So a number of you uh, mentioned this, but let's put it on the table. 
What has been the impact of Las Vegas, whatever happens here, stays here, kind of it's a family friendly, it's a, you know, it's a place where you go see shows and you have dinner, the whole attempt to change gambling to gaming, which I refuse to do, so I call it gambling. How has that impacted folks who are struggling with gambling addiction? I think a lot of those things keep the person gambling longer. I don't know how many people I've gotten calls from and I talk to, and they can't quit just yet because they still got comp rooms at the uh, casino. So they're lured back in by that. Things like that that entice them just to keep gambling. We talk about this as a disease, and it was early on in my recovery, it was a big thing. You got to hit rock bottom before you're willing to surrender. Well, if it's really a disease, if you had cancer, you don't wait until you get to stage four and say, I'm not going to treat it. I think anytime you can intervene and, and assist uh, and try to curtail the gambling, because it's only going to progress. It's only going to get worse. Uh, in the years that I've been around, I've never heard anybody relapse and come back in and say, oh, it wasn't quite as bad or I can't, I'm winning. I just want to be stopped. It does get worse. That's Ed Talbot, who's the executive director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Debbie, you're nodding your head. Yeah, I would just say to follow up on that. Finding these people who are potentially struggling, finding them early is really important. And that's why we really kind of push for screening in all sorts of different places. And in fact, the division about six years ago now kind of launched an annual gambling disorder screening day mm. where we promote screening and local treatment providers and advocacy groups. And um, we ask for support from other key stakeholders. And it really has become both a national and an international program where across the nation people are taking a screen and asking people who ordinarily might not be asked about their gambling-related problems and helping them should they screen positive for having an issue. This does a couple of things. It helps the people who might be at risk for having a problem, but it also helps create awareness among some of those groups that Marlene mentioned, among bankruptcy lawyers, among people that are involved with criminal justice, educators, yeah, uh, health just providers, sharper. and the like. Yes. Yeah. So has this whole psychological attempt to rebrand, <clears throat> ha have you seen that impact? It isn't really anything that I specifically have studied. Mm -hmm. I know that the industry really has tried to diversify the way that their businesses operate. Mm -hmm. I think it's worked well for them. Um, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Marlene, how about you? I may come at it at a slightly different angle, which is our game sense advisors, when they're interacting with someone, what is nice about the opportunity to have things other than gambling on the floor, on the premises, is that gives people an opportunity to take a break. So one of the things we want people to do is pause, take a deep breath, get a drink of water, walk away, be away from the gambling so that they can collect themselves. So the fact that there's now a bowling alley, multiple places to eat, a place to go see a movie, some other activity other than mm. gambling is actually refreshing in many ways uh, to our game sense advisors who are trying to find a way. They may not be fully willing to walk away from the facility, as I think uh, Ed mentioned, but I do appreciate the opportunity to walk away for a little bit and take a break. And that can just, you know, maybe get you back into your mind for just a second, you know. Yes, exactly. Uh, I noted that the website Wallet Hub, which does all kinds of surveys about any number of issues, just did a survey about the most gambling addicted states, and Massachusetts came in at 26. We're not in the top 10, which is good, but we're not 50 either. Now, how they 
came up with their rankings, I, I'm not quite sure, but I thought it was interesting. The first state, of course, is Nevada, and followed by South Dakota. Both of those states have a lot of gambling facilities. So if we're talking about, as we started this conversation, about more opportunities, it seems that if you have more, that does make a space for people to find themselves there. And I'm just thinking now, as this new casino is about to open, there's a slot parlor that's going to open on Martha's Vineyard. We still have the lottery, and Governor Baker is just really interested in this uh, sports betting, which, by the way, brings in a lot of revenue for the state, 10%, 12%, depending on how it's, how it's handled off the top for the state. That's quite a lot of money. Do you expect to see any change in what has happened in terms of impact on community or individuals, Debbie? I think that, you know, I would look to history uh, to see what has happened in other places and what has happened in the nation. And since the 1970s, gambling has really expanded quite dramatically in the United States. But if you look at the rates of gambling-related problems in the nation and the general population, they've remained relatively stable even after that and during that gambling expansion. I do think that new gambling opportunities provide uh, new access to different individuals. So there is some risk for increased rates of gambling and increased rates of gambling-related problems. But as Marlene described earlier, I think that there are adaptation processes that kick in. A little bit of novelty goes away. People adjust. The public health system responds. And those increases really kind of stabilize and drop after these new opportunities open. Marlene, how do you answer that? And I should say that Massachusetts, of all the states, seems to give way more back in terms of support of programs about prevention and treatment and looking at this as an issue. Yes, the Massachusetts Expanded Gaming Act provided, the, as we were talking about earlier, the 5% of gross gaming revenue to the Public Health Trust Fund. And that Public Health Trust Fund, uh, when it's fully funded, the estimates have been between 15 to $20 million annually. That is far and beyond uh, what any other state is doing to fund uh, the prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery supports uh, around this issue. So, uh, yes, we are a leader. And I think that because of the Public Health Trust Fund Executive Committee and the uh, efforts afoot, the Department of Public Health and the Mass Gaming Commission, we really will be leaders. Uh, they are taking those monies and really putting them back into communities, whether that's uh, funding the research, funding the Game Sense program, funding media campaigns. The Department of Public Health has just one, done one around men of color um, with a history of substance abuse, funding programs such as the Photo Voice for youth in affected areas, looking at recovery ambassadors. So there's a number of different ways that um, they're going to really try to pinpoint and impact people who are at, at risk. I, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about you know, we still have the lottery. We have, we don't just have a lottery. We have the most profitable lottery in the world, mm. far and beyond any other lottery in the U.S. And like I said, anywhere else next to Singapore. Mm. But around $800 for every man, woman, and child is spent on a lottery in a year here in Massachusetts. We already had a very gambling-focused state. So when we consider Sports betting, for example. You know, I have mixed feelings about this. And the reason for that is because we already know lots of people already bet on sports and they bet with their bookie. Well, it's hard for me to go to bookies right now and get the helpline promoted or to mm -hmm. have a program promoted. But when you legalize it and regulate it, then you have an opportunity to really reach those individuals playing. 
And uh, when you look online, there's so many more ways to intervene. So when we talk about online sports betting or online lottery versus brick and mortar, a lot of people are very concerned about it. And it's because it's a new a new area, a new frontier. However, there are a lot of ways that we've learned from Europe and elsewhere that we can really intervene. So I think that, again, we're, we're spending a lot of resources and really trying to do it right across that whole spectrum of prevention through recovery. But there's still much more to be done. All right, Ed Talbot, you get the last word. What do we want to say to somebody listening about how we should think about compulsive gambling in a state that has a big lottery, more casinos to come, and more other opportunities to gamble? Well, I think there's an obligation on any provider of uh, gambling to address the downside of it. And, uh, you know, I don't think any casino operator wants to be uh, in favor of living on addicted gamblers. So to partner and network with the people who are in the prevention and recovery support uh, and treatment uh, specter and try to work with them to come up with new programs like GameSense. New Hampshire, I know from the outset, was the first state to have a state lottery. All their money, from proceeds from the money, go to the educational trust fund. And there's no way in the world you can knock that. That helps keep the taxes down and benefits education. But by the same token, there's nothing going to problem gambling services. Where in Massachusetts, that is being addressed. And I think we need to follow that in, uh, elsewhere and have these programs available because somebody needs to be there on the other end of that helpline when the call is made. Because if it's not answered or the person doesn't get the right answer, it's probably going to be another bet. And then there's the chance the person wins and says, oh, things are turning around. I'll see you later. And it only gets worse. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for joining me about this uh, very important issue. And um, I'll be uh, paying attention to it as we get these other facilities in place. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Debbie LaPlante is a director of Cambridge Health Alliance's Division on Addiction. She is also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Marlene Warner is the executive director of the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. And Ed Talbot is the executive director of the New Hampshire Council on Problem Gambling. Coming up, a continuation of our special Encore show. With unemployment at a 50-year low, Boston-area food businesses are struggling to find skilled workers. And yet, some of the population remains chronically underemployed. The Boston-based New England Center for Arts and Technology, or NECAT, kills both birds with one stone by matching adults facing barriers to employment with food industry jobs through a rigorous professional culinary training course. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. We're in the midst of the tightest labor market the U.S. has seen in decades, with an unemployment rate of 3.6 percent. 
As a result, industries across fields are experiencing labor shortages. One market hit particularly hard is restaurants and other food services, where the number of jobs is projected to grow 14 percent by 2028, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Since 2013, an organization based in Boston, Massachusetts, has been working to close that gap. The New England Center for Arts and Technology, also known as NECAT, helps place chronically unemployed adults in food industry jobs by providing them with professional culinary and life skills training. Joining me in the studio to discuss the program at NECAT, Joey Cuzzy, Executive Director of the New England Center for Arts and Technology. Hello, Joey. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Also with me, Bob Krajewski, chef and instructor at NECAT. Hello, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Glad to be here. Glad for you to be here, too. And Randy Brimley, a recent NECAT graduate and current bread baker at Whole Foods in Dedham. Hello, Randy. How you doing? Nice to meet you. I'm nice to meet you as well. Well, let's dive right in with you, uh, Joey. You've been with the program for four years, even though it's six years old. Tell me how you found it or how it found you. <laughs> I feel like I was always made to be at NECAT. I've been a nonprofit executive director before coming to NECAT. Um, and had a special interest in food insecurity in the community that I worked in. I worked for the YMCA of Greater Boston. Um, and it had actually been introduced to NECAT via the YMCA as we were starting up our own teaching kitchen. And when NECAT was looking for an executive director, uh, Martin Hemsley, our founder, reached out to me. And it seemed like the most perfect job for me, and it has absolutely been that. So six years ago, did the folks who put together this organization realize the big gap that was needed? Was that what drove it, or was there more of a, what can we do with people who are chronically unemployed and this seems to be a good career path? It's absolutely both. <laughs> the philosophy behind NECAT is that you train people in an industry where there really are jobs. So back six years ago, we knew that the industry was booming, didn't know it was going to explode in quite the same way it has and knew that training people in culinary arts would guarantee that after they completed the 16-week program, they would definitely have employment, and that's the goal. The goal is just to, you know, help people who have been underserved in our community, folks who have not had a chance, who have had various maybe barriers to employment, get the skills necessary, and absolutely have a job at the end of the 16 weeks. What's the point of training if there are no jobs available? So we can seamlessly train people and move them right into employment. Okay. Over to you, Bob Krajewski. You were a chef at Salem and in Maine doing your own restaurant thing. This seems to be wholly different from doing what you did then because you're teaching these uh, folks who come through how to work in kitchens. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite aspects of being a chef in a, in a restaurant is the ability to train young cooks that are coming up, people that are trying to really get into the nuts and bolts of what it is to work in a restaurant and, and be a better line cook and, and as uh, executive chef and owner sometimes, one of the best opportunities and best things I have is training. So I was looking for kind of a change of pace and Joey was looking for an instructor. So there we are. It's, it's a real, it was a real easy decision for me to make uh, to come on over and it's absolutely one of the best things that uh, I've done professionally and uh, having a, a great time for the last two years. 
It's a six-week training program, as we've said, and you do the first part of the training, and then they move on to the finishing part. So what do you see when a new crop of folks comes in? What, what are you looking at? Who, who are these people? Uh, I, am, <laughs> I, am lo- <laughs> I am looking at everybody. We call them cohorts, so the class that we have that just started, uh, I have about 27 students, and it is a cross-section of Every different demographic you can name, I've got some people that are looking to kind of not change careers, but but get into something new. I've got younger students that are a, maybe a couple years out of high school and everything in between coming from any kind of background you can think of. Maybe some people that are in recovery, maybe people that have been recently released, and then people that, again have different barriers, but have a barrier that, that they're looking to overcome and, and they think that NECAT and, and culinary and, and what we have to offer is, is the way through. And when we say uh, people who've just gotten out, Randy, they're referring to people like yourself, born in Roxbury, had bad turn in your life. Tell us what you were doing before you enrolled in NECAT. Well, I have served a 15-year federal prison sentence for drugs. So while I was in there, I picked up the passion to bake and cook. Now, when I came home, my probation officer thought it would be a good program to look into. I came home February 27th. The next cohort started March 27th. I was there, graduated July 12th. Two weeks after that, right in at Whole Foods. Had a couple of offers, you know, so I figured I went, weighed, weighed my options out and went to be the bread baker at Legacy Place. My training at, man, my time at NECAP was wonderful. Okay, so you were kind of predisposed to uh, do something in the culinary area with food because you were doing it while you were incarcerated. Yes, ma'am. But when you got in class, was it hard? How did you feel when you when you started? It was strange to be in a classroom setting again. It was like, oh, man, I'm going through this, you know. But Bob was a wonderful teacher, like book smart. You know, if you didn't know, don't feel ashamed to ask the question. Ask it. Get the answer. Pay attention. Learn. Because what he had to teach you, you might not thought at midnight and then, but as soon as you get in the kitchen, it means a lot. Did you have any idea that there was such a shortage in for kitchen help, good, skilled kitchen help in Massachusetts? No idea at all. You know, I'm a big guy, so I like to eat. <laughs> so I was like, let's give this a shot. Paid off. Certainly Paid did. Off. So, Joy Cuzzy, um, executive director of the New England Center for Arts and Technology, 65% of your students graduate, period. And then 80% of them, like Randy, go on to get uh, jobs. Um, what happens to the gap that you can't close of the graduates? Well, quite frankly, we work, we continue to work with them post-graduation. Sometimes life just interferes. They're not ready at the end of a 16-week program to take full-time employment. And it could be any number of reasons. It could be lack of housing at that point in time or lack of child care, transportation. Any of those issues can impede a person's progress to employment. So we don't give up. We work with them continually. We tell them that they can come back. We continue to provide job opportunities until we find the exact match that will work for them. And we never give up. We'll just keep working with them until they find employment. Which brings me to the point that this is more than just training for kitchen skills. Absolutely. Like Bob's a great teacher. You can have enthusiastic students like Randy. But really what NECAT is is a lifestyle management program with kitchen skills as the foundation. Would you talk about that? Sure. We often say that teaching them to cook, teaching them the cooking fundamentals is the easy part of the job. 
But there are reasons why people have been chronically unemployed or underemployed. They've either had no opportunities, lack of training, they've had trauma in their background, they've been homeless, they've in recovery programs, they've been in prison. So all of the social-emotional issues that have prevented them from moving forward are what we try to deal with each and every day to encourage people to be more self-confident, to teach them the basics of what it takes not only to get a job, but to keep a job. Conflict resolution, how to work as part of a team, how to advocate for yourself, what to say during a job interview, what not to say. So our program really has four pillars. One is the cooking fundamentals, all of the skills that you'd need to be a line cook. The second is all the life skills that you need, why it's important to be on time. Any chef in the city will tell you, give me someone who will show up every day, show up on time, do what I want them to do, be a part of a team. That's the person I want to hire. That's what we're trying to impress upon them each and every day. Once they're there, we teach them how to get that job. It's a different world when you've come out of prison or you've been unemployed. How do you apply online? What do you say about the gaps in your employment history? How do you advocate for yourself? Do you have a, can you tell in 30 seconds what you can do and what you can't do? Why should you impress upon that employer that they should hire you? And finally, once you have some money, how do you deal with it? Financial mm-hmm. literacy. Mm-hmm. So now you have a paycheck. What does that mean? What can you really afford? Are you able now to get housing on your own? Can you get a credit card? How do you manage that money once you have it? So we take a really holistic view of it, and we really feel like we meet people in their journey where they're at. They need to want to change their lives. We're there to help them, and we'll support them in any way possible. We also have case managers who work with our students on a daily basis to help them navigate all the various other kinds of social services they may need to be successful. That's what makes us different. You're really revamping your whole life, Randy. I mean, you know, that's a whole other way to think about this, uh, right? Because she just mentioned all the other life skills you have to have in addition to learn how to bake the bread. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. And how was it for you? Was it, did it just feel overwhelming? At times it did. You know, you just want to, man, I got to get up and go again. Is it going to be worth it? You know, but you got the family. It's like a family-oriented program. Were you afraid you might not sort of get it all together at any yeah. point? Yeah, I was nervous, quiet, pretty much kept to myself. Then, you know, start loosening up and going in, paying attention, staying focused. Staying focused is what really made me get through it, knowing it was something different at the end. I figured if I can work in prison for 12 cents an hour, I can go out there and make a real dollar and get back on the right path, path I need to be on. And they helped me do that. Exactly. I'm Callie Crossley, and you are listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Joey Cuzzy and Bob Krajewski of the New England Center for Arts and Technology and the recent NECAT graduate and Whole Foods baker, Randy Brimley. We're discussing NECAT's innovative professional culinary training program that aims to connect chronically unemployed adults with food industry jobs. Now back to you, Bob Krajewski, because it's sort of like pizza dough. You know, you got to knead it, knead it, and knead it, if I can use cooking terms. That's that's my extent here. Um, so I'm really curious where you're looking at the journeys of the people who come in and what you see at the end. So give me give me an example of like a typical class day and how, how you all are working together. Uh, a typical class day starts with uh, our morning lineup. So both classes, the first half of the program and the second half of the program. So first half of the program, the uh, the first eight weeks, they'll come in, and the second eight weeks, they move into the kitchen. And we, we start with 
a little bit of motivation. Uh, it's a hello from all of the, the key staff members. We'll have you know, uh, my, my partner, Chef Tom, uh, and I will have our, our kind of opening uh, conversations with them, telling them what the day is going to be like, what we're going to go over in class, what have you. I try to bring a lot of energy to the morning salutation. I have a thing that I do. And then once we break from lineup, we go into the classroom. So I'll bring my students into the auditorium. And from there, we go into whatever the lesson plan happens to be that day. Uh, it'll be talking about stock or talking about our cooking technique of the day. We might be talking about knife skills or any of the, the foundational things that, that I cover in my class. And I spend about a week and a half going over ServeSafe, which is a, a sanitation, uh, national sanitation program. So hmm. just as uh, a, everything that you would need if, exactly. you, if you go to a job. Yeah. So let me ask you this question. Did you ever feel or do you ever feel just so totally disconnected from people who's you know, prior lives certainly were nothing like yours and and concerned about how to reach them. Yeah. While I, I have had uh, a little bit, especially when we had the restaurant, my wife and I had a little bit of struggle when we were in Maine. Um, but I've been very fortunate in my life. And one of the biggest things that I was dealing with, and even to a certain extent now, is how do I relate to people that are in a decidedly different point in their life? And I, I had a pretty good conversation with, with the deputy director, my direct support, Martha, about this right before the summer. And it was about relating. And, and what it comes down to is while we have different backgrounds, the, the easiest thing to relate to is honesty and being sincere, um, telling them really what it is. This is what it is to work in a kitchen. This is who I am. And, and to be able to be comfortable talking about anything in a very frank conversation, giving praise where praise is due, being able to correct actions when, when that's needed as well, not letting your, your set of standards slide because it makes it easier. So relatability now for me has less to do with who I am and my background and who they are and they, their background. I, I start off on day one, is like, I don't care who you were yesterday. I care who you're going to be tomorrow. Looking at it through that lens, it makes it easier to relate because we're not, I'm not comparing myself to you and you're not comparing yourself to me. We're looking at where we're both going to be moving forward. So being able to talk about that and talk about what that requires and how I can help facilitate, train, give you the information makes it easier to be relatable to all the students that come through. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I have to do where I have to kind of subset people into, all right, I have to treat you like this and you like this. Everybody is in the same point. When they come to school, we're all going to the same goal. So everybody is going to get the same thing, at least from, from myself and Chef Tom. Mm -hmm. we, we give them the same thing regardless of who you are. That's my guest uh, chef instructor, Bob Krajewski. He teaches at the New England Center for Arts and Technology. His students are the chronically unemployed who are in a 16-week culinary arts and lifestyle training program. Um, I just wanted to just make sure that people understand some of the details about the program. So it's 16 weeks, as we've said, 
It's free tuition, but here are some things that you have to have to be eligible. You need to be committed to securing a permanent job. You have to be able to commit to the 16 weeks. You have to be at least 18 years old, legally able to work in the state of Massachusetts, GED and high set preferred, committed to staying in touch with NECAT for at least two years. You, you talked about that, Joey, after the program. And in Everett, because I want to get back to you about Everett and why this is so, you have to be able to pass a fingerprint background check. So Joey Cuzzy, uh, the executive director of NECAT, the reason you have to be able to pass that fingerprint check in Everett is because you've got a number of your graduates working at the Encore Casino. True, <laughs> but that's not really why oh, the reason we have okay. to fingerprint okay. them. We're very fortunate in that we utilize space provided by Everett High School. Mm, got it. So we are sharing our space at Everett High School while there are still students in the building. We run an after-hours program at Everett High from 3 to 8 p.m. And because there are still uh, youngsters in the building, we have to make sure that the students that we are running extra through our program, extra yes. precautions. Mm-hmm. But you got some people at Encore working. We absolutely have some people at Encore <laughs> Encore has been an amazing partner um, to NECAT in this past year and a half. That's part of the reason why we started our second program in Everett, to be a pipeline for um, the culinary jobs. They launched, as you know, this June, and they were hiring over 600 culinary positions, way more than we were going to be able to fulfill, of course, but knew that they had to make a commitment to training people in all of their areas and decided to partner with NECAT on the culinary side of the training. At launch, we placed about 35 graduates from both Boston and Everett at Encore, which has helped us raise our hourly rate of pay substantially. That's um, wonderful. It is. It has yeah. been wonderful. Um, we're averaging $17 an hour for our graduates in all areas of the city of Boston because the playing field has been upped because of the Encore Casino. And they're well-trained, obviously. Yes. <laughs> what is it like to be in the second-chance business, Bob Krajewski? Because you're the liaison um, for people who are... No, I'm... I'm for you, what, what you know... What, I, I love it. This is the most fun and best place I've been in my entire career. Uh, and I've been all... I've done a lot, and I've been around a lot, and truly love what I do. And... Uh, look forward to coming in and, and doing it daily. And for you, Randy, the recipient of a second chance, what does it feel like to have this this uh, wonderful big chapter change in your life? Yeah. It's a new start. It's like a new beginning, a whole new me. You know, just staying focused, working, doing the right thing. You know, knowing I got the right support, I had the right training, the right the right people around me. You know, the love, you knew it was genuine. It's still there. They reach out to me all the time. I reach out to them. You know, the opportunities still grow, knowing that I know the culinary side of the field. And, and let's the just, let, let me make a point that you know it. You you are making bread from scratch. Yes, How many ma'am. kinds of bread from scratch can you make? 19. There you go. 19 different kinds every day. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you're well-trained. Yes, yes. Could you have imagined yourself, you know, those years when you were sitting in prison, where you are now? Was this Was this beyond something you could have imagined at the time? I can imagine it, but not at this level. I figure like maybe working at a mom's and pop's bakery, doing cupcakes and brownies, but making the bread from scratch and and seeing the faces that be happy. You know, people get mad over their bread. Oh, I know, because I didn't get any. <laughs> you didn't bring any in here, let me just yeah, say, for the mad. listeners. <laughs> yes, yes. So 
<laughs> yes. It's wonderful. I, I feel good. I'm happy. I'm happy I accomplished something. And I'm going to stay, stay on it. Joey, what's it like for you being in the second chance business? Second chance, third chance, fourth chance, doesn't matter. Um, we tell our students all the time that your past doesn't need to define your future. I have never worked anywhere where every day you see someone moving along their journey um, and progressing. Every single day you see people when they first come into NECAT on that very first day, they're not in uniform, they're standing in line, they're apprehensive, their heads are down, no one's looking you in the eye, no one's shaking your hand. And within a couple of days, you feel them relax. You see them look at you. They see them respond to you. You see them already talking to the chefs and talking to the rest of the staff. Um, you see them each and every day take a step forward to the goal that you know that they're really committed to, which is to changing their lives for the better. It's not too often you get to work and see a person right before your eyes change each and every day. So it's enormously gratifying. Um, and it's a privilege, actually, to really be a part of a journey. When you hear someone like Randy talk about what the program meant to him and to see his success, it just fuels, motivates everyone on the team each and every day. So it's, a, it's truly a privilege. And I should also mention that you were one of 51 organizations that got a community grant from the city's workforce development program. Yes, we did. Um, because you're exactly uh, at the mission of those workforce grants. You're setting people up to go right into work and fill much-needed jobs. Yes, and we're serving, you know, we're Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan. We're right in the heart of a very troubled neighborhood. We're on 23 Bradston Street, which is next to Suffolk County House of Correction at that intersection of Melnia, Cass, and Mass Ave that has been so problematic. There's a methadone clinic on the first floor of our building. There are homeless shelters all around us. Every day we see, you know, the most struggling individuals in the city. So we get very annoyed when we hear the neighborhood given names like Methadone Mile and mm. as if there's nothing good happening in this city to help people move toward re recovery. We consider ourselves a very important piece of the recovery of people who have struggled for a long period of time. We would love to just be recognized for the role that we play in moving people along their, their journey and, and really helping the, you know, an entire underserved population. Those are the people who are looking for the jobs Unemployment is at the lowest point in the city that it's ever been. That's who's going to fill the jobs. And if we're not training them properly, these jobs are going to go unfilled and restaurants are going to continue to operate understaffed. So we're playing that part, helping uh, the restaurant industry find those qualified people, yet we're playing the very important role of helping individuals who've never had a chance get that chance and make something and, and really better their lives. Well, congratulations to all of you, and thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Joey Cuzzy is the executive director of NECAT. Bob Kryaski is a chef instructor at NECAT. Randy Brimley is a recent NECAT graduate and current bread baker at Whole Foods in Dedham. That's it for this week's special Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. 
I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.